Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Corey uh, was sitting across from a friend who had been in his church for a little bit of time and was wrestling. He was wrestling with his own sexuality and with what the church that Corey was pastoring was calling him to. And he said this, Do you realize what you are asking of me? Do you realize what you're asking of me? And Corey, in the article that I read, wrote that he thought he did. He understood the challenge and the call of sexual faithfulness in a Christian orientation to the world and to our bodies and our life. He understood the call of finding our satisfaction in Christ, the cost that it would be. But he said what he didn't understand until he reflected on the conversation later was how little he had set up the church that he was pastoring to make faithfulness plausible for this young man. The young man eventually pushed away from the church um, and couldn't stay in their community because they could not provide the kind of intimate depth of relationship that we're all made for. Corey wrote then, Later on, the church often puts the demands of Christian sexual discipleship without creating social conditions to make those demands possible and attractive. And the undergirding thing that he was talking about was creating deep community, intimacy and friendships, something that we are all made for, all wired for, but we don't often find. 
This uh, article that I read in 2014 came into my mind a couple years into a journey that I was on myself related to uh, Vienna and sex and modern culture, all three of those, kind of a funny combination there. Um, but I, it was uh, in the early, uh, mid-2000s when I was getting ready to plant Christ Church Vienna, and I remember walking around Vienna. I was on staff at the Falls Church, but I would walk uh, around Vienna looking for what is happening here in this town? Why do people live here? What drives them to live here? What is it that interests them? And one of the things I saw as compared to other places in the D.C. area was that, um, that Vienna has a desire, or at least the people who move here have a desire for community. The newer houses have front porches as if it's the 1920s and people actually sit on their front porches. They close off Main Street 123 for parades and people come out for parades. They have ball fields and kids sports and it's built around this small town sense of community. And people move here from all over DC longing for a sense of place, a sense of belonging and a sense of community. And I, I sense there was something in that that if a church was going to start, it needed to build into that, that, that longing and desire for place and connection and people. In the same time, I was also trying to understand some of our cultural moment with regards to sexuality and gender, the wrestling with identity, and the bigger questions of what does it mean to be human? Where do you find your identity? Where do you get your worth? How do we know what is good and right and true? And on top of that, the more I read, the more I see, we live in the most fractured and isolated and transient culture ever. We are separated, we're dealing with loneliness, and we don't know how to cultivate relationships anymore. So we codified in our vision and values becoming an extended family of believers in Christ, to see one another as brothers and sisters, grandparents, nephews, nieces, even if we're not related by blood. But to be in the church community is to be an extended family. But I wondered, even as I read this article a couple years into having planted Christ Church Vienna, if we are able to cultivate the kind of community that makes plausible faithful singleness or faithful marriages or faithful life. And I want to look for a little bit more extended time, because Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, at singleness in particular. So uh, this, the statistics are out there that it, people live alone far more now than they ever did in generations in the past. In the 1960s, in the 1960s, one in eight Americans lived by themselves. Today, it's one in four. And for the first time ever, about a couple of years ago, we uh, crossed over the threshold of over half of adult Americans are single, unmarried, widowed, divorced, um, never married. So over half of our culture is unmarried or not married right now, and, they, and that will, trend will continue. But to be single and in the church is often to have longings that are unmet by the church community. One friend of mine a number of years back talking about her singleness said, look, I want to have kids. That's one of the reasons I'd like to get married. But more than that, I want somebody on my team. I want to know somebody is on my team. When I win, it's somebody to celebrate with. When I'm losing, it's somebody to weep with. Another said something a little more funny. She said, on a person-to-person -person level, I want to know you care about me. 
but you care enough about me that at two in the morning, if I need to bury a body, I know I can call on you. <laughs> I've got some friends for you, not, not me. And then another one said, it's hard to come into the church on a Sunday by yourself. It's a place with perfect families. I know, I know they're not perfect families and they have issues, but it looks like it when they walk in together and I don't. The modern American church, which is part of an atomized, individualistic, fractured culture, has done a good job of emphasizing marriage in the nuclear family, but often has undervalued or dismissed singleness. There's a sense in which many churches would say an adult single person, especially at a certain age, is incomplete. Or something must be wrong with them. Why, why aren't they married yet? If a 35, 40-year-old starts coming to our church, the first thing we do if we get to know them is figure out who we can set them up with. And what's the underlying narrative of that? This is what you need. I mean, think about it. If, if Jesus started attending many of our churches today, how would most of us respond? How would most churches respond to Jesus if he just started attending the church? You'd hear conversations, side conversations, that I think that guy needs to settle down. He's always on vacation, going to different cities with his friends. I think if he would stay in one place, he needs to buy a home. Others of us would be like, dude's weird. I mean, he tells stories, and they have no point. <laughs> and some of you, some of you would be like, he's got personal grooming issues, and he walks around in Birkenstocks. I mean, what adult man wears Birkenstocks? He's never going to find somebody to marry him. Did Jesus need something? Wes Hill, a New Testament scholar who's written on this subject a lot, wrote, solitary people know the full sorrow of friendship's gradual diminishment in our culture as we maintain our commitment to maximal, maximum autonomy. I talk regularly with many of these people, men and women who have passed the usual age for marriage and who turn to the church hoping to find a robust vision of committed friendship only to encounter a looser, more casual form of social life that seems to say, we can be friends as long as it doesn't require too many sacrifices. We are relational beings. C.S. Lewis commented on how we can't even enjoy something without someone to share it with. We can't enjoy a new restaurant or a new song or band even a new friend we've made without having other people to share it with. It completes the joy and the pleasure. But we no longer live in a world that is surrounded by deep and committed relationships. In his book, Sex in the Eye World, Dale Keene writes about the transition from the traditional and ancient world to the modern world and how our relational structures have changed dramatically. So if you go to the traditional world, which still exists in some parts of the world, or the ancient world, you know, hundreds of years ago, 
people lived in a three-generation family. It was not a nuclear family only. It wasn't mother, father, kids. It was grandparents, mother, father, kids, and usually other mother, father, kids related to those grandparents, all living pretty much on the same block, in the same village, for decades upon decades upon decades. Your entire extended family, all your cousins, aunts, uncles, they all lived in the same village because they were part of the same clan. You were known. You had a place. Even if you were single, not married, or didn't have kids, there was a role for you to play in survival, basically, on the land with the children, with the sick, weeping with those who died, celebrating with those who were rejoicing. You had a place, and you were known, and none of it was going anywhere. Of course, that ancient and traditional world had a lot of badness to it as well. It made an idol of race and ethnicity, of having offspring. All of the values were put on having children. If you were barren or unmarried, there was a devaluing of your worth, even as you had a place in community. And your status was fixed. If you were poor, you stayed down. The modern world has thrown all of that off. We don't want to be held down by that. Now, we live in a culture now that is really good for many things. We are upwardly mobile. There's a ton of economic opportunity. We are transient because you get to go to college. Hundreds of years ago, only certain people went to college. And in America, anyone can become anything. You can become something. You're not fixed in a status because of the town you're born in or the parents you were born to. But in the midst of this transient and individualistic and fractured and atomized society, we don't have relational structures of order or stability. It's more like a scattershot of relationships. It's, you know, friends here or there. Our friendships don't have a structure. They're more like if you took a, a shotgun and shot it up against a wall. And so some people are closer to us and some people are more distant and they may be married or they may be single. We may be married, we may be single. But all of our relationships are matters of convenience and a shared interest. And people come and go out of our circles based on their move to a different career and place. We do not have a three-generation family, most of us, or extended family, or a place. You do in high school, you probably will in college, and after that it doesn't exist. Few of us have long-term friends, and almost none of us have extended family, nieces and nephews and grandparents that we're not actually related to, but it's as if they are that in our lives. The gospel creates the possibility of a new relational structure. It does so as it begins with the story of the gospel, right? Let's begin with the story of the gospel. We are fallen and sinful people. We have been separated from God. We are alienated and alone and apart from God by our sinfulness, and we are longing for the love that only he can afford us. 
There is, as, as Augustine said, a hole in our heart, essentially, and we're constantly trying to fill it with something. Success or romance or family and kids, some of these things are good things, but they cannot meet the depth of the hole in our heart and our longing. But in Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection, we have the opportunity to be reconciled to God. And the offer of Jesus is God loves you and accepts you through me. And I've come to make you whole, to fill that hole in your heart. When you find Christ and that filling and reconciling to God, it's actually possible to do relationships the way we are meant to because you can finally be vulnerable and open with people. Most of us keep people at arm's length because we're hiding things. We don't want them to find out what we're really like. But if you know you're a sinner saved by grace, you have nothing to hide. You can admit the depth of your sin and brokenness, which brings people closer to you. And it's possible to be committed and loving because you're not trying to get something from other people. You don't need to use them selfishly nor do you have to avoid them because you fear getting hurt. You can be committed and loving because all you have, all you need, is Christ. The gospel transforms us and enables us to step into relationships, and relationships that push outside of marriage or kin or ethnicity. Jesus, of course, radically upends the whole idea of what relationships are built on in that ancient world, right? There's that story where he's teaching in the village or in the one town, and his mother and brothers come because they think he's crazy, he's out of his mind. And Jesus says to the, to the people gathered, who are my mother and brothers? These are my mother and brothers and sisters. Whoever does my will, whoever follows me. He is overturning for the first time in history, he is overturning the orientation around family and clan and reorienting it around himself. It's not marriage and blood, it's me that binds you. And then think about the example that we don't really explore much about his relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So from the stories that we get of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we're gonna read them on face value, they are two sisters and a brother who live together, which means at this point they're probably all single. There's no identification of spouses or of children. They live in a house together, so there's a new model for you, brothers and sisters living together as adults, and Jesus is one of their best friends, and he has a relationship with Mary and with Martha. Mary sits at his feet. Martha is the one that he goes and has a, a tete-a-tete after Lazarus dies. Lazarus is one of his best friends. He's weeping at his tomb. Jesus has intimacy and care, and they care for him, and he stays at their house. There's a depth of relationship that transcends anything that ancient world was, that was normative to them. As he says, we are family in Christ, in me. <laughs> he creates a new way of looking at relationships, elevating friendship as a new family of brothers and sisters where you can be known and loved and cared for, and celebrate with, and weep with. And Paul is building on that ethic, the ethic of the gospel and the demonstrations of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 7. 
One of the great things, if you have read through 1 Corinthians 7 this past week, is that it identifies people of every walk of life. It talks about those who are married and those who are single. It talks about those who are engaged to be married and those who are widowed and those who are divorced. It talks about male and female. At one point, it talks about the circumcised and uncircumcised, which is an ethnic division, Jew and Greek. And later on, it talks about bond servants, basically a, uh, a status differentiation between high-status patriarchs and servants and slaves. And basically, he's talking about all people, all people in any walk of life, in any season or status that that ancient world could think of. And he's saying the gospel abolishes human categorization. It relativizes them and redefines them as finding their hope and identity in Christ. And as a result, Paul is able to do two things. One, uphold marriage while also elevating singleness. Marriage is highly important. The fabric of community is bound together often by strong marriages and children being carried on, being raised up in those homes. But Paul lays down part of his vision for marriage. In verse 39, he talks about marriage as a lifelong union, lifelong. He talks about how in marriage you give up yourself for another person. He's talking about sexuality in the body, but in marriage you commit to saying, all of me is yours. You hold nothing back. And then even at one point, he suggests that if, if a married Christian is married to somebody who does not believe, there may be some way in which your relationship with them has a saving effect. The gospel may come to them. There is a power in marriages that pushes us in our selfishness and pushes us to commitment beyond just now and what I want. But what's more surprising than his view of marriage is how he elevates singleness. In verse 7 and 8, he talks about how I wish all of you were as I am, unmarried. Why? Because to be single, to not be married, is good, verse 8. The ancient world would never have said it is good to be single. What is he talking about? He sees, as he talks about in verse 32, that there's a way that in singleness... My devotion can be for the Lord alone. In marriage, I have this divided self. I have to care for my family and serve the Lord. And we often get it the wrong way around. We just serve ourselves. But he says in verse 38, he who marries does well. It's a good thing. He who refrains will do even better. That's pretty radical. There's a way in which stepping into our singleness or our marriage for the Lord can be a good thing. And a way in which Paul even lays it out as it can be better in singleness. I think some of the insight into that is in this phrase in verse 8 about the gift. Verse 8 says, Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Most commentating on this suggests that there is a gift to marriage or a gift to singleness and celibacy. And so you're wondering, like, do I have the gift of marriage? Do I have the gift of celibacy? 
Vaughn Roberts, uh, an Anglican pastor and writer commenting on this said, he would suggest in the reading of this and how Paul is laying out the whole the rest of the chapter, that the gift is not about whether you are celibate and called to be celibate or married and called to be married. That's not the gift, the gift of marriage, the gift of being celibate. But rather, the gift is the state you are currently in is God's gift to you. And you need to see it that way. The state you are in is God's gift to you. This is where I have you right now with small children at home keeping you up at night. This is where I have you right now in high school unsure of what's next. This is where I have you right now in widowhood, in marriage, in singleness. This is where I have you. This is my gift to you come to me. Seek me. And we need to be asking, what is God offering in the gift that he has given me right now? What is he inviting me to do, to know? What does he want of me? And I think there is a vocational calling in that for us. You know, in verse 19, he talks about, here's the main idea is keep the commands of the Lord. The commands of the Lord, as the New Testament lays out, are love God and love your neighbor. And guess what? You can love God and love your neighbor whether you're married or single. In marriage, you will need to give yourself more exclusively to your spouse and kids. There's a necessity to that loving your neighbor is starting there. There's a greater freedom in singleness. You can love more equally, more broadly. And in that sense, unmarried people have a uniquely powerful vocational calling in cultivating community in any community. They have a necessary role to play in connecting us one to another, married, single, in and out. And for themselves to be brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, we all have a calling relationally tied to the gift of where God has us right now. We need to hear and see what God is calling us to and to live in that place of contentment where we find our satisfaction in God. Three times, three times Paul talks about remaining. In verse 17, he says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And then two other times, in, in a small section, verse 20 and 24, he says, remain as you are. In Hebraic understanding and in even Greek understanding, a triple statement of something is an emphasis. It's a way of saying, if you haven't gotten this again, let, let me just say it again. Let me, let me say it one more time. Remain as you are. I have placed you where you are. Find your contentment in me and recognize that whether you get married or gain independence, whether you have sex or never have sex, whether you have a best friend or are struggling to find friends, where you are, God wants to use you and meet you because ultimately none of the things we search for, no perfect college, no great career, no, no perfect husband or wife can satisfy us, only God can. And as Paul also points out, 
We are made to live for eternity. In verse 31, he says, the present form of this world is passing away. Jesus said, there's no marriage in heaven. That the union of a man and a woman is actually meant to point to something else. Even those highest points, things we uphold in our culture, sex, right? Love, pleasure, creation is meant to point to an eternity with the Lord. You know, the Bible talks about the bride of Christ. God's spouse is us. And in eternity, we will be united with God, have complete and total union with him. (laughs) Two people become one in sexuality. In eternity, we become one with God in some way. And we are filled with a far greater and deeper joy and satisfaction and fulfillment than we could ever know or have here. And we'll have total communion with one another. No more brokenness or scattershot friends. We will be known and loved. And I think Paul's calling us to live now as we will one day in heaven. To know and find our satisfaction in God and to love one another. And that's why one of the things we've pointed out in our church is is becoming an extended family in Christ. This new gospel-driven extended family in Christ. And in this new extended family, you have single and married connecting across lines, people with kids and no kids, cultivating a three-generation family of aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and cousins and grandpas, And what it might look like if we were the red is to have people that are our peers and people younger than us and people older than us. And that if you have that community, you can kind of reestablish the sort of depth of knowing that we are made for. Dale Keene wrote, family, and he's talking about this sort of extended family, is meant to have relational priority over marriage because all of us are born into family, but not all will marry. In this way of looking at things, being single is not a death sentence or a sign one is odd. If we can cultivate extended family in our own lives, no individual will be lacking in a broad constellation of deep and meaningful relationships. You know what this is all about? This is all about friendship. It's all about friendship. Let's simplify it. Jesus elevates friendship, doesn't he? In John 15 and in 1 John 4, we get this description that God is revealed in our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, God is revealed in the relationship of husband and wife and families, but here he's also elevating friendship. Brothers and sisters in Christ, their love for one another reveals God to the world. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Paul writes like, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast. And he's talking about what? Marriage or the church? The church. 
He's talking about us, like if we're gathered together and he's saying, love is patient, love is kind, and that's a verse or, or set of verses that are often used at, at weddings because it's a beautiful description of how love pushes us outside of our selfishness. But that's the call of us as brothers and sisters in Christ, as friends. Single or married. Friendship is unique and wonderful and available to all, young and old, single and married, whether you have kids or never have kids. But cultivating friendships is hard. It takes time and sacrifice. If you really want to cultivate deep friendships, you're going to have to commit to a place and to people as a priority over money or what you want on a given day. To get the depth of friendships that I think we're made for, then you do have to commit to at least a few people in your life and connect often and allow for some version of affinity while also pushing ourselves out to like connect across and outside of just our normal circles. And ultimately, this is going to mean you're going to have to do something like eat together a lot. You already eat three meals a day. Well, some of you do. Some of us eat four or five. Um, But whether it's one meal a day or five meals a day, eating together, drinking together, spending time together, and doing it again and again and again. To have friendship will cost you your freedom and independence. But what you gain from it is so much deeper. Not all will get married, but all are made for community, and we all need friendships. Wes Hill wrote in Christianity Today, as a single person, I acutely need intimacy and loyalty from friends. I'm eager for them to say to me, we love you because you're ours, without leaving an escape clause. And Gina D'Alfonso, a writer for Christianity Today, who's also in our church, is currently serving with one of our kids' classes, wrote in her book One on One about singles in the church, we all need that network of people who care about us, who are there when we need them, who remember that we exist. At some level, we need to be a part of each other's lives. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, you have set the solitary in families. We commend to your care our extended family of Christ Church Vienna. Fill us with faith and patience and grace. I pray that you would knit together in constant love those who in marriage have become one flesh. I pray that you would turn the hearts of parents to their children and of children to their parents. And I pray that you would enkindle love among us all as brothers and sisters in Christ, married and single, old and young, that we may evermore be joined to one another with bonds of family. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.